0: From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there, and now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate, Sundays at 12 midday, only on 101.9 High FM.
1: Hi FM 101.9, it's Kate Turkington, and yippee, it's Mother's Day. Today. So a very, very happy Mother's Day to wherever you are in the world and whomsoever you are. We all have mums. Many of us are mums and make it a special day. Even if you make a little card or you make a telephone call, you may be lucky enough to be with your children. If you're not with them, obviously you're going to call them and hopefully they're going to call you. So very, very Happy Mother's Day today. Okay, what are we going to talk about today? Well, as you know, I've just come back from a fascinating trip to Ireland and Scotland and England. So I want to tell you some of the things I've been doing and some of the places I went to. Because still a great travel destination, Ireland or Scotland or the UK. Yes, we know the Rand is something like twenty three to the pound at the moment. But you know what? You go with a certain amount of money when I travel, I mean I don't have any money, but I travel with the little bit of money I've got and I'm not thinking a cup of coffee is eighty Rand or a glass of wine is a hundred Rand. I'm thinking I've got X amount of money and that's what I've got to spend, and remember too, in the UK, in Ireland too, the UK, just let me, you all know what the UK, it's Northern Ireland, Wales, Scotland and England, and the Republic of Ireland is that bottom half of the island of Ireland, which became a republic, I think in the 20s it was, not quite sure, not quite sure of that. So you you go to the UK. So many of the museums, so many of the art galleries are actually free. The Nat- National Portrait Gallery in London, in Trafalgar Square, still free. And as I've said to you before, and I've been talking about other cities. Whatever, if you're going to a major city, be sure you buy a travel pass. All the major cities have something called a travel pass and you'll end up saving a lot of money by purchasing one and then doing as many of those attractions and museums and places of interest that you possibly can. And public transport is cheap and easy in most of, certainly in the UK uh, and certainly in most big cities today. Anyway, last week I talked to you about Northern Ireland. So this week, that bottom half of the Republic of Ireland isn't part of the UK. Yes, it finally became, thanks, finally became a republic in 1937. So very different. The north of Ireland wants to stay and keep being British. The Republic of Ireland doesn't want to be part of Britain. It wants to be its own republic. Hence, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. So, of course, the Republic of Ireland, I'm just going to call it Southern Ireland to make it easier. The capital city, Dublin. One of the most fun cities in the entire world because of the Irish. I mean, I don't know. I don't think I've ever met an Irish person who didn't have the gift of the gab, more of that and on, and who wasn't witty and full of fun. So Dublin, an amazing city. It started off, would you believe, as a viking and the Vikings settled there. So many, many modern Irish people are actually descendants of the Vikings and I think as I've said to you before on the programme, don't believe the Vikings were, as you see them on television, just going about pillaging and raping and generally causing mayhem and murder the majority of them were actually farmers and settlers so they might have gone off on a rampage to begin with but then they settled down, some Sometimes for hundreds of years in the Shetlands, in some of those northern islands of Scotland and Ireland, Scotland and Ireland themselves, they became very law-abiding citizens. But I'll tell you a bit more about Dublin after the break.
0: From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles. Kate Turkington has traveled there, and now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate, Sundays at 12 midday, only on 101.9 High FM.
1: Welcome back. I'm telling you a bit about Dublin. Great, great city to go to. Very, very vibey city with the best crack. You hear the word crack coming up when you're in Ireland. Oh, they've got great crack there. Oh, it's wonderful crack. It's not C-R-A-C-K. It's actually a Gaelic word, crack. C-R-A-I-C. And it loosely translates as fun having a good time, and Dublin is an amazing place to have a good time, so originally a Viking port, then in the Middle Ages, it became a walled city. Then, in the Georgian times, think uh, Queen Charlottes on Netflix at the moment uh, a Georgian city with wide avenues, garden squares, beautiful mansions, and the city is divided by the River Liffey. The Liffey runs right through the middle of Dublin, and it divides the city between the north and south. So because you've got a river running through the middle of the city, you've got lots and lots and lots of bridges. And the most famous bridge is a bridge called the Hapney Bridge, Hapney being uh, an abbreviation for halfpenny. Because it was built, I think, in the 1800s, and in those days, if you wanted to cross the bridge, you had to pay half a penny, or halfpenny, as it's known, to cross the bridge. So still the ha'penny bridge, and postcards and all the souvenirs and a lot of the sort of tourist tat uh, feature the ha'penny bridge uh, on them. So connecting the north and south of the city Dublin is famous for something else, or Ireland as a whole, North and South, is very, very famous for something else. Something that no other country in the world has achieved. I wonder if you know what it is. They have won four Nobel Prizes for Literature. Just think. It's a very, very small island. When you connect north and south, not a very big island at all. Yet they have won four Nobel Prizes for Literature, which is absolutely amazing. Okay. William Butler Yeats. I taught Yeats at Fitz, so some of you listening, I'm sure, will remember being taught Yeats by Kate all those years ago, George Bernard Shaw. And I remember, as I think I was about three years old, being introduced to George Bernard Shaw. And all my mother said to me, remember, remember this day. It's a very, very famous man, a very famous author. And I just remember he had a long white beard and he had brilliant, brilliant piercing Blue eyes, and there's a bit of a, an add-on to that story because when one of our most famous authors, Ezekiel and Pleyel, came back from exile. It's a long story, I won't bore you with it, but he stored some of his furniture in my house, just some bits and pieces, and he came to the house, my youngest daughter was about three or four, and I said to her, never forget this day, this is a very, very famous author who's been to our house, and a few weeks later as he completely came back to the house and my youngest daughter, Tiffany, opened the door and she shouted out, Mummy, mummy, famous Arthur's back, famous Arthur's uh, back. So, four Nobel Prizes for Literature. Yeats, Shaw, Samuel Beckett. You may not all recognise Samuel Beckett's name, but you'll certainly recognise Waiting for Godot, his most famous, famous play, And then from the north of Ireland, from Northern Ireland, Seamus Heaney, wonderful, wonderful poet. So there you are, small, small Ireland with four prizes, Nobel Prizes for Literature. That says a lot about the use of the language and how people love language and how they love talking and the wit that you uh, hear. Now, just outside of Dublin, and I've always been fascinated by ancient places of worship, and I'm very lucky to have been to so many of them. I've been to Machu Picchu in Peru, where the Mayans, uh, uh, not the Mayans, the Quechua, local Quechua, worship the sun, the Mayan tombs in Mexico in Chichen Itza, Jerusalem, of course, the Vatican, the biggest temple complex in the world. I wonder if you know what that is. Angkor Wat in Cambodia. And actually it's the largest religious monument in the world, sacred monument. Uh, You can swap those words around. Parthenon in Greece, which, of course, was once a temple, to the goddess Athena, Stonehenge, where I was a couple of weeks ago, I'll tell you about that uh, another time, the pyramids. Think how many of these great wonders of the world were in fact places of worship or sacred sites in some way or another. And last year I was in Malta, the 5,000-year-old Hagar Kim, temples in Malta, but just outside of Dublin, there's a 5,200-year-old passage tomb, Newgrange, just East of Dublin. What's a passage tomb? It's like a large mound. Think of these huge, huge mounds of earth with an entrance built in, a tunnel built in to the very centre where somebody we don't know who would be would be uh, worshipped and Newgrange in fact, it's one of the most significant and well preserved prehistoric sites in Europe UNESCO World Heritage Sites, as most of them are. And it was constructed 3,200 years BC, or before the Common Era. And that makes it older than Stonehenge or the Great Pyramids of Giza. Now, just come with me, it was a very cold day, it was a bright, bright day sun was shining but freezing cold beanies, scarves, gloves we walk up to this major uh, sort of tomb, large mound made of earth and stones, I suppose the diameter, not very good at space, it's about 85 metres I would think and at the centre of the mound is this stone chamber and you Go in it, you go through a narrow passage, you have to bend right down, only let six people in at a time. Runs about 90 metres, so it's quite, quite a long passage. So we all go in, we have to bend down, the guys especially, because the roof is very, very low. And then as, finally, after about 90 metres, it, it opens up into this little room, with a corbelled roof. A corbelled roof is made of overlapping stones. Think, I don't know how it survived for 3,200 years, but there it is. These ancient craftsmen knew what they were doing. And the whole passage and the chamber itself is decorated with very intricate carvings, spirals, diamonds, geometric patterns. So interesting because when you think of some of our Sam Bushman rock art, particularly the engravings, there are some outside of Kimberley that are spirals and geometric. What, 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 what do they all have in common? I don't know. Were people in a trance? Did they all get into a trance-like state and see these spirals and patterns, but it is striking how many of these ancient sacred places, thousands and thousands of years old, have the same kind of decoration on their stones. So, okay, you go in, you walk in, there were six of us, and the entrance to the passage is aligned with the rising sun on the winter solstice. That in the Northern Hemisphere, that's December the 21st. So it's the shortest day, the longest night. And, of course, that sun coming in symbolises rebirth and reincarnation. So think about it. You've got this narrow, narrow stone passage with a very, very small opening. Yet, on the one day in the year, the sun creeps along that passage and illuminates the centre of that chamber. Just like the Great Pyramid in Egypt or the Fortreca Monument outside of Pretoria, same thing. The The amazing geometry and knowledge of the stars and the sun and the planets that these ancient people had. And one of the ladies in the chamber, as we went in, you, in the visitor centre, before we walked up to the mound, you could enter a lottery, and the lottery was for a chance for you, an opportunity for you, on the day, 20, uh, December the 21st, you could be one of the six people who actually stand inside the tomb and watch the sun come in. And I stood next to the most charming Irish lady, a teacher who had won the lottery last year. And I said, well, how was it? She said it was cloudy. We didn't see a thing. <laughs> anyway, my ticket's in the lottery and who knows? I might be going off to New Grange on december the 21st
0: from the highest mountains to the bluest seas the driest deserts to the icy poles kate turkington has traveled there and now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio travels with kate sundays at 12 midday only on 101.9 high fm Hi
1: FM 101.9, Kate Turkington, lovely book I've just finished reading, which will keep you on the edge of your seat, and an unusual book, because it's not crime, it's not romantic fiction, it's a sports story, it's a story about a runner, it's the story of Abbey, and she's a young South African woman, has a suffers a dreadful tragedy when she's young, when she's a teenager. In Johannesburg, her books set mostly in South Africa, but she goes on to become a world icon. So we we can think probably off the top of our heads several people like her, whether it's tennis, whether it's soccer, whatever. Anyway, joining me now in Laxton. He's a sports journalist, he's a commentator, he's an author, he's worked at events ranging from comrades to the Olympics. So somebody who really, really knows and understands the background to a lot of sport, not just running. So first of all, Ian, congratulations on the book. So my first question then, Ian, is is money. Is sport today just about money?
2: It's not about money, but it's mainly about money, Kate. It is a huge, huge factor... And, and obviously money comes in. You talk about if he rode, there was no money. There was no money for donkey shows. I mean, rugby only came, became professional in something like 1995, which is like 30 years later. But honestly, I truly believe, Kate, that money isn't the only thing. And, and if you read my book, you'll, you'll see that Abby, um, while money becomes a big factor in the story, and I mean that uh, in, a, in a very real way, it's not the only factor. No. There's there's a whole a whole host of, of factors around that individual people have, you know, um, about doing well and achieving and winning. I mean, if you think about Roger Federer, for example, he played tennis. Year in and year out, when he had more money than he could ever imagine how to spend. Why did he do that? He loved it. He loved winning. So money is huge, but it's not the only thing.
1: And it's not, you know, they keep on playing too. It's not only the money, as you say, money for when you become that famous is relevant. It's also the hype and the adulation and the cheers of the crowd it's hard to it's hard to put that down
2: Yes. So, and and I'd, you know, I'd like to expand on that a little bit because you, you're very, very correct there. It's also about about the accolades and the fame and the the kind of the the, the way people, the sports stars, become almost gods in the eyes of people. And that's you know, and and the influence you can have, and you can run charities and and the, the, the tennis prize, and people do that. But the the thing about money is, it introduces. A risk of criminality because people look, you know, you look around us and and, and money becomes in a way the source of evil in society. And you'll see in my book that the money issue becomes Mm. a real problem in terms of people that want it for the wrong reasons. And, of course, you know, um, that well, that's certainly an issue. Um, It introduces a, a criminality element into the whole of sport and certainly into my book.
1: Yes, uh, the, you, you know, just coming back to what you were saying about sports people being elevated almost into deity status. They become like gods. I mean, I think of somebody like Sachin Tendulkar or Maradona in soccer, Rafa, uh, in, in tennis. I mean, these are quite dangerous precedents for young people because, d- d- you know, it seems to me that maybe people sometimes, as we see in your book too, people go into sport for the wrong reasons.
2: Oh, absolutely. Certainly. But I think, I think, you know, we need to talk about people going into sport and, and, and this book. And if you look at the Maradonas of the world and the, the, the Nadals and Federers, those people are extremely rare. They are very, very rare and, and a ton of people were going. Try and play pro golf or pro tennis or whatever. It's just for the money. But only a tiny minuscule handful will make it to the very top. And you need to look at those people specifically in terms of what are they trying to do there. And, and money certainly is one thing. But I do believe, and certainly for my my heroine, Abby, in my book, it's really about uh, a complex, a complex series of motivations, one of which is money. The other is to do the possibly the best. And for her, there's a hidden agenda, which you alluded to at the beginning, which we don't want to go into because it's part of the plot. So it's a complex. These people are complex people.
1: Yes, yes. And then that brings us to, to the role of the coach because now the, the, you've got to get the absolute perfect coach who suits you and I was thinking you know talking about people being idolized I suppose somebody who got totally hyped up far too early uh, young UK tennis star Emma Raconado I mean she wins the US Open gets million dollar uh, sponsorships from all over the world has hardly won a game since and has changed her coach a uh, coach more times than uh, I change my my underwear um, so a coach a coach so it's the deification on the one hand hyping up and maybe people don't live up to that hype but when they do achieve that star status how meaningful is a coach then
2: it's, it's incredibly important, and it's important both in a team sport, and it's actually quite amusing to watch the way some of the top football clubs change their coaches when they're not winning, and rugby teams and that sort of thing. So the coach in a, in a team situation plays a very different role. It's it's almost more of a leadership role um, with with great groups of people. And, but in individual sports, especially in athletics, the coach is, is absolutely pivotal because it is a one-on-one, a personal relationship. And that's what uh, the, the, the tennis players have. And, and, uh, it's, you can be a really good coach technically, but unless you connect mentally, emotionally with, uh, with a person, it's, it's, it's not going to work. And Emma Rodicano is a classic example of that. But in my book, the relationship between the runner and the runner's coach is pivotal mm-hmm. and it works very well and it's extremely successful.
1: And, you know, again, the role of the coach, a coach can't guarantee winner what is it can you you know in general can you generalize what is it about these very very successful athletes be it in athletics be it in football be it in rugby or whatever what does it take to be a winner not just talent no well
2: absolutely not so I think, you know, let's let's go through that quite quickly because I've got a very clear idea of what the answer to that question is. The first one is you've got to be born with the talent. It's it's genetic. And I remember Bruce Ford I once said, somebody said, why did you win nine Comrades Marathons? And he said, because I chose my parents correctly. And that's a bit of a, a funny line, but it's true. He got the genes, and, and that's the first thing. You've got to be born with the genetics. The second thing is you've got to work hard. It's got to be, it's the 10,000 hours of, of, of classic uh, literature, and you work and you work and you work and you work. Then it's goal setting. You've got to be working towards something. You've got to have goals in mind. And when I think about my wife, Sonia, over the years, she was motivated. She set goals for herself in terms of time, in terms of winning, and they were rock solid goals. And she went out there and she got them. And then I think finally it's the whole, what we call big match temperament. It's the ability to perform on the day under the pressure because so many talented, brilliant, Sports people will fold under the pressure. There's too many people out there. There's the television in their faces. There's the crowd. And there's the talent out there on the track. And I've always said, and it certainly comes in my book, that the book is called The Final Lap for a very good reason. In my race, it's four laps. And everything happens in the last, in the final 400 meters, the final lap. And it's the person with the strongest mind. As well, that will win the race. So it's those various things.
1: And and you touch upon, the book deals too, with the enormous sacrifices that athletes have to make. And when I say athletes, again, not just talking about athletics, any sports, enormous sacrifices.
2: Well, yes, obviously, and and um, you know I I like to 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 differentiate between an individual sport like a tennis player, golf, or athlete, and then the team uh, the team groups. With the the team sport like football or soccer, it's it's kind of all the guys together, and and they go around, and there's a team spirit, Um, and obviously they're away from home for months on end on tours and all sorts of things. But the individual athletes and tennis players and runners. They are with a little small group of people—a coach and a physio and a, and a manager and whoever—and they travel around the world on airplanes and in and out of hotels, time zones, all those sort of things. And it is a huge—it's um, a very big sacrifice you make have to make in terms of of real living, you know, and and, and especially for a woman. And and Abby has to ask herself, you know, is this all worth it? Yeah, yeah,
1: and yes, I was thinking too. You know, I'm, I'm a cricket fan, so I. Uh, Watch IPL when I can. I don't often have time or I'll watch a test. But I think of these tournaments where stars are cooped up in little hotel rooms. Okay, maybe they've got all my cons and everything. But you play a game, you do your best. You actually go back to your hotel room and get sleep and wait for the next day. It, it must be a very lonely life.
2: I agree. Um, I don't know how they do it, to be honest. And I think very few people can. But it's, I, you know, maybe I'm being a bit simplistic here, but it's driven by the passion. Yes. You know, they love what they do. They actually love what they do. The cricketers love going out there and and facing a fast bowler or, or trying to get somebody out, you know. They absolutely love it on the football pitch, trying to score a goal from 30 meters out. They actually enjoy it. And Abby, the one chapter when she goes for a run by herself in Loughborough in the forest, it's like, I love doing this. It's like, it's like an addiction. Mm, mm, mm.
1: And then coming, coming to injuries, also having to take Care of yourself with the possibility any moment. Again, coming back to cricket, Jofra Archer so hyped up. Just now, one injury after another. It, it, there's a lot of, I don't know if luck's the right word, but there is a lot of luck as well. You can look after your body as well as you can, but something can and does happen.
2: No doubt at all. And, and obviously certain sports are more likely to result in injuries. I mean, if you think of rugby players and the impact yeah. and all the knees and the soccer players with knees and the fast bowlers with their backs in mm-hmm. there. But, but, but with, with distance running, it's, it's, I would like to say it's even more risky. Um, because of the, the, the push, you're pushing your body to these nth degree of, of stress. And funny enough, it's more, it's a bit more dangerous for women because women, they, what they do is they wind their, their, their bodies Fat ratios down to very low levels because men have got naturally a lower body fat ratio and in, in women distance runners it's, it's, it, they, they, they wind it down through, through exercise and through dieting and, and all sorts of hormonal things happen and stress factors happen. So you're living on the edge and that's where the coach comes in. The coach has got to know when to stop pushing you. And, and, and in comrades marathon we've said don't overtrain, don't overtrain, even the average runner. So yes, injuries is a huge problem.
1: Yeah, and doping, doping. That, that's, I mean, it's always in the press and the media one way or another. Any sport. Your views. It's prevalent, isn't it?
2: Well, it is. You know, I mean, it certainly is an issue, and you have these incredibly high, high-profile issues like the Lance Armstrong in the, in, the, in the cycling and that sort of thing. But, but doping obviously is an issue, and, and dope, if if you do doping properly, scientifically and medically, it can make a massive difference to your performance. And I'm talking running here specifically I'm on track with uh, with 100 meters, it's the power, and uh, with the longer distances, it's the endurance. But doping certainly is is a very important issue, and the doping authorities like WADA, and these guys are almost like one step behind because the science is always kind of ahead of them. But in my book, you'll see the doping is more than just taking a banned substance to do better. It's a risk, and athletes around the world have got to be ever so careful about what they eat, when they eat it, how they take it, and and what they inject. It's Because quite a lot of doping in athletics is not the fault of the athlete. They've made a mistake. They weren't trying They just ate the wrong thing at the wrong time And that was that
1: And that very often ruins their career then
2: Completely Completely
1: And and uh, you know getting back to the money Question Ian Why do you think it is Athletics hasn't uh, Hasn't got the big money Like some of the other sports Athletics has never had A lot of money thrown at it and I mean, it is very you know, that- glamorous and it's incredibly wonderful to watch, yet it, it's not, you know, if I said to, so if I talked to my team here and said, do you watch athletics? I mean, some would, some wouldn't, but it's not big, like, do you watch soccer or do you watch rugby or cricket? Why do you think? Why, why hasn't athletics attracted the big money?
2: Really, really interesting. And, and, you know, I think just talking technically here, I think uh, there's so much money in sport because sponsors put huge amounts of money into a sport, whether it's motor racing or soccer or tennis or whatever it is, because they get exposure on television or on streaming or whatever it is and they get value. Yeah. And why do they get value? Because millions and millions of people are watching that. And they pick up the branding on the athletes, they pick up the adverts and they so it's all about television viewership. And and I think that if you if you if you think about athletics when are the big viewers there? They're there for the big events. They're there for the, yeah. for the, for the, uh, the world championships. They're there part of the Olympic games. But there's a ton of athletics that is wonderful, which has a smaller television audience relative to the average soccer match. I mean, the PSL and in, in, in the premiership in England have got hundreds of millions of people that watch it around the world. And there's more money going into the sponsorship and therefore there's more money paid by the television rights People in the in the countries to broadcast it. Therefore, the participants, the stars of the show, are able to, like, collectively get more money. That's why it's a kind of a. That's very simplistic, but it's all about television viewing yeah. and ratings and audiences. Yeah,
1: yeah. And you know, going back to genetics in your time, have you seen perhaps somebody you thought, "Oh, wow, here's a natural athlete. here's a a natural." Runner. I think you know I think I'm sure you've watched that TV documentary on Tiger Woods it's quite old now but I mean at 14 months old even younger his father put a golf club in his hands that kid never had a childhood but obviously there must have been something his father saw that encouraged him to do this So was it just good luck in the end.
2: <laughs> you know what? I, I've 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 thought about that, and you take somebody like Chris Evert, the tennis player, and Chrissy Evert started playing tennis when she was like three or something, yeah. but. You know, for every Chris Abbott and every Tiger Woods, there are then an, another 20,000 dads out there putting golf clubs and tennis rackets into their kids' hands, and they never even make the first team. So so it's way more than just starting young and working hard. I promise you it is. And, you know, I, it's so funny when when I watch track and athletics in South Africa, and especially in cross-country, and, and when Zola Bud was the, the number one in the world, and she was fantastic and brilliant, you'd go to a track meeting or a cross-country meeting on a Saturday afternoon, and there are... Like forty little girls running down the track, and their moms are screaming at them on the side, and they all want them to end up like zola budd and guess what none of them do <laughs>
1: exactly now how much I mean your wife, one of south africa's most famous athletes, Sonia Laxton, what was her input into the book Ian
2: you know what it was effectively zero she didn 't get involved she never she never read it, she never Uh, on the way and she didn't ask me what it was she had a vague idea she just kind of let me get on with it so there was no direct involvement she never asked she never gave an opinion but she is and I haven't based a book on her not at all but I've based it on an amalgam a kind of a generic combination of three or four world-class women athletes that I've worked with my wife's son is one of them Zola Badu, I know well, Ilana Mayer, a couple of others. And I looked at them and I created a kind of a combined character because my Abby is like a bit of all of those people put together. So Sonia practically had nothing to do with the book, but sort of emotionally she had a lot to do with it.
1: (laughs) And a final very, very difficult question you can answer as you will. What about trans athletes? They're getting banned from um, some sports. They're not getting banned from cycling yet, as we know. Your views?
2: I'm very confused about that. And I almost don't have a view because it's all too weird for me. And I don't, you know, I, I certainly don't want to go on the record with anybody. I might have a, an, an, an opinion you know, in the over supper talk about it, but, but, I really don't have a view on it because I don't understand it. It seems, it seems crazy, you know, like suddenly, like there was a guy and now he's a girl and, and he's, he's competing in the girls swimming team. That to me is a bit strange, but And and it's all about to me. It's all about fair competition. And and again, I'm not going on the record or at all. But you take us to Semenya, who who had a a testosterone issue, and and that for me that helped her. So where you know athletics is all about men and women. It's the only thing that differentiates the sport. And so what is a man? What is a woman? And I don't want to go there. To me, it's just confusing. To be honest, Kate, I
1: think confusing (laughs) for all of us. But Ian Laxton. We so enjoyed your book. Thanks for talking to us. It's called The Final Lap. Is Winning Enough? And you'll find the answer. Uh, it's published by, let me look, I've got it here in front of me. I've got oh. Seminoles Guidebook uh, Publications and it's available in bookshops now. Thanks so much, Ian.
0: From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, The driest deserts to the icy poles Kate Turkington has traveled there And now she's inviting you To travel with her through your radio Travels with Kate Sundays at 12 midday Only on 101.9 High FM
1: one point nine High FM, Kate Turkington. And I'm telling you about the Republic of Ireland, not Northern Ireland, where we were last week with Titanic and the Giant's Causeway, which is part of the UK. Now we're in that bottom half of the island of Ireland, which is the Republic of Ireland. And lovely, lovely thing to do. Millions of people do it every year, apparently. I went to Blarney Castle. Okay, Blarney, I looked up Blarney in the Oxford English Dictionary, and Blarney, the definition is talk that is friendly and humorous, but probably not true, and which may be used to persuade or trick you. Now, let me tell you how that happened. Almost 600 years ago, one of Ireland's fiercest chieftains, Dermot McCarthy, Built his fortress in County Cork in Ireland. And when he built it, little did he know that a stone at the top of the castle would one day become one of Ireland's greatest treasures and that millions, yes, millions of people would come here to visit it. And why do they come? They come to kiss the legendary Blarney Stone. It's reputed to give whomsoever kisses it the gift of the gab, the gift of eloquence. And I could read out hundreds of thousands of famous names. Everybody from Winston Churchill to Mick Jagger have kissed the Blarney Stone. So, of course, my little group of friends kissed it too. I didn't kiss it this time because I kissed it about almost 60 uh, years ago. But let me tell you about the castle first and the grounds. It's spring at the moment in Europe, in Ireland. So as we walk towards the castle, just think colour. Yellow daffodils, crimson uh, tulips, bluebells, rhododendrons, azaleas, pink and scarlet. Oh, or oh, Blue Camassia, forgotten about Camassia, all in the meadows below the car- castle. And the thing about Blarney Castle, it's a very satisfying castle. Why? Because it looks exactly like one of those castles that we used to read about in children's books or you see in Disney films to this day. A really proper, proper uh, Castle, and the walls just think about this the walls are nearly five meters thick. If you now, wherever you 're listening, you actually paste five meters, you would just see how thick the walls of that castle are, and they slope inwards, they slope slightly inwards, and that 's not that wasn 't just to make the castle stable but also it had a more sinister uh, meaning, because it helped to fend off enemies, what happened if you dropped something nasty or heavy from the battlements because the way the wall was slanted, it would bounce off the wall and onto the heads of your invaders and if they survived that and they got to the doors above the door there's um, the main door there's something called a murder hole, so the Castle inhabitants will pour boiling oil down through the murder hole onto your head if you were an invader. Also, before you go into the castle, there's even a dog kennel. And, and, um, a sentry box. I mean, think about these. These are hundreds of years old. Not like somebody just built a dog box yesterday. This has been here for hundreds of years. Um, we couldn't help thinking we were going through the, castle we went through the great banqueting hall and the kitchen and the dungeon and the chapel and the priest room I mean really awe-inspiring but we were all thinking exactly the same thing sure it must have been freezing in winter because I said it's an April day a spring day but we're all wrapped up in fact one of my Fellow travellers who comes from Nebraska in the States had an electric coat on. I'd never heard of one before. It's a coat that actually has a battery inside it that warms up, that warms up your coat. So obviously those Irish chieftains and their clans were a very, very tough lot. Now, why Blarney? Well, Queen Elizabeth I desperately wanted to lay her hands on Blarney Castle because it was such a super, super duper castle. But the McCarthy of the day, he was very clever and very wily and he kept fending her off with false promises and charm and chatting and yes, we'll do it tomorrow or majesty or uh, next year or whatever. And apparently she got so fed up she said that they were Earl's words Or all blarney, hence the word blarney. So if somebody's talking blarney, they actually could be talking a load of rock, but they'll be doing it very, very charmingly indeed. So now you climb up 127 steps to the top of the tower to kiss the stone. It's not easy. That's why I didn't do it this time. You lie on your back. Think about this. You lie on your back you lean backwards, you hang onto the iron railings for support, you stretch out your neck and shoulders as far as they will go and sort of upside down and backwards, you kiss the stone. And there's a very, very strong attendant there who hangs onto your legs to to be sure you don't plummet down into the gap in the battlements. And, almost certainly, you'll have a stiff neck, you'll have a stiff shoulders and back, but, hey, you're going to have the gift of the cab, you're going to have the gift of eloquence forever. And just a last thing, it's not just the castle and the stone that's worth the visit, the gardens are Absolutely gorgeous. They stretch for over 24 hectares. So there's a fern garden, there's a Himalayan valley, there's a rock close, there's all kinds of gardens. We didn't have time to go to them all, but I loved the poison garden. There was a poison garden which had a display of plants that could knock you right off your feet or worse, kill you outright. Did you know... I didn't know that rhubarb leaves are incredibly poisonous. I never, ever knew that. And then there's a carnivorous courtyard, and that carnivorous courtyard is full of man-eating, person-eating to be woke, sinister-looking plants that could sting you or wrap you in their tentacles or lure you into their hungry flowers and then there were gorgeous walks 2k's 5k's 10k's beautiful beautiful gardens and i just remember that the air was full of bird song uh, a little red squirrel bounced up a tall tree there were swans gliding by i saw a heron fishing in the river truly truly a magical place Well, I could go on and on, but you might think it's just Blarney.